Well, church, if you could turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We continue to study this gospel. We are in Mark chapter 5, we'll beginning in verse 1. As you can recall last week, Jesus and his disciples were on a boat, and there was a great storm, and then with a word, Jesus calmed the storm. And prior to Jesus calming the storm and his apostles being completely unnerved, they were quite unnerved because of the storm. But before that, they were focused on getting to the other side of the lake. After all that happened, they got there. They probably weren't thinking about their destination too much, but they found themselves there. And so that's where we find ourselves in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, into the region of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him who had been dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was screaming and gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, even in these words that we just read, we have come face to face with a tormented soul, with one who is persecuted, oppressed, one who is feeling the weight of sin in a tangible and palpable and heavy way. For this man, it was a burden brought on by possession, brought on by demonic evil forces, causing him to live apart from people, cause him to live in pain and anguish, And although this picture of oppression is magnified, every one of us understands the impacts of sin, the effects of sin, the great heavy weight of sin upon our shoulders, how through our sin, our soul is gashed. Through our sin, we are cast away from the fellowship of the saints and from your love but that through your presence, through that special grace that is given to us, we can do nothing but bow down before you. So Lord, this morning, with that in heart and mind, with your word in front of us, we pray that your spirit will illuminate your word so that we can be drawn closer to you, seeing the great deliverance that came from your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. Have you ever had a situation that changed that you didn't like the change? The answer is yes. No one likes change. No one likes change. Well, 
almost no one likes change. The person who's making the change probably likes the change, and that's why the change is being made. But usually people don't like change. People don't like their lives being upended. They don't like things being different. This might happen to you at work. A new policy comes in from on high. Now, if you're the boss, then you're the one who's putting the policy in, and you're the only one that is to blame. But this has happened countless times where a new policy comes in, a new way of recording information, a new way of punching in, a new way that things have to be done, a new procedure, and there's great consternation because we have a way of doing things. We have a policy. We have a procedure. We have a way that is comfortable that we're used to, and you're changing it, and we don't like it. This is natural. This is, this is human. In fact, there are countless courses if you go to business school or if you go to that section of, the, of, of Amazon, I'm going to say the bookstore, you go to the section online of buying books about leadership that express how do you guide your people through change because we don't like change. And the fact of the matter is, is that change in a healthy organization, in a healthy church, in a healthy family, in a healthy country is not done simply for the sake of changing things. It's done for the betterment of the organization, of the organism, or of the one who certainly needs it. What we see in this story is a change that comes to a man. And, although not explicitly, a change that comes into a situation. And we see a varied response to it. We see a man who is hopeless. We see the situation get changed. And then we see that the response to that situation is mixed. Even though the change of the situation is inevitably good, is inevitably right, is inevitably godly and righteous, the response is certainly mixed. So we'll see this hopeless man, the change that comes about, and then the the mixed response as we work through this story in Mark chapter 5. So once again, turn with me to verse 1 where we meet this man that we've already read about. It says, when they came to the other side of the sea into the region of the Gerasenes, they got out of the boat. Immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, who had been dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was screaming and gashing himself with stones. So we see two things in this opening part of this passage. Firstly, the setting. Second, the man in the setting. The the disciples cross the sea and they find themselves in the region of the Gerasenes. Jesus and his apostles are now in a Gentile region. The all four Gospels record Jesus' ministry, and they record, and, and they are very often very explicit about when he is in Jewish territory and when he's in Gentile territory. It wasn't like the flannel graph showed where every scene was the exact same desert scene and everything was completely consistent. They were two very different settings, and inevitably, just like today within a region, whether it be New England or the United States, There are certain variations based on where you go. There were certainly variations in the Jewish context that Jesus ministered and the various Gentile contexts in which Jesus ministered. But generally speaking, in the Gentile context that Jesus ministered, 
things were in a way and a setting that were often offensive to the Jews. We see that pointed out in countless ways here. There was uncleanliness all through these first few verses. Firstly, there are tombs. Tombs were unclean places. You go back to the Mosaic Law, and you see how Jewish people could not be around tombs, and the times when they had to be around tombs, the time of of cleansing themselves and purification was protracted. Secondly, as we'll read here, that uh, later in the text, as you, you know, there's pigs in this story. The pigs play a very, very significant role. And the pigs were also indicative of uncleanliness. As we know, the, the, the Jewish people were forbidden from eating a number of things according to their law, one of those things being pork. And at this point, we can all say, thank God for the new covenant and for that sheet that Peter saw and the blessing that is bacon, ham, and sausage. Amen? We're not a church that amens, but that's worth it, I think. So we see tombs, we see pigs, and we also see the setting of where this kind of the story ends up as the Decapolis, which is this area, these 10 cities that were kind of still under significant Roman rule. So the, the, the Jews were under Roman occupation, but this area was very Roman and, and very uh, um, in, particularly pagan in the way that life went on there. In fact, 63 BC, Pompey came down, conquered the area, and he kind of set up this area to kind of be run in a way that was consistent with Roman life. So all of that Roman tension that we are used to seeing and thinking about when we think about Jerusalem and the surrounding area, that was tension with the Jews living like Jews according to their lifestyle and their custom. The tension that you would see in the Decapolis in this area is a tension that goes even beyond that because it was a Roman lifestyle. So for the original audience, for the Jews receiving the Gospel of Mark, they would be seeing this and they would be very uncomfortable. This is Jesus on the wrong side of the tracks. But then it gets taken to another level because it's not just that Jesus is in this uncomfortable area. He has this uncomfortable uh, encounter with this man a man who is oppressed, and a man who is oppositional. So he is living away from people. He is living in the cemetery, in the graveyard, for a lack of a better term. But he is also living in a way that no one would want to necessarily have him come and be near them. Look, about, look at some of the things that are said about this man. First, he has an unclean spirit. It explains in verse 2 what the problem is. And again, an unclean spirit is not a mental health issue. An unclean spirit is not just having a rotten personality. An unclean spirit in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen it four or five times already, this is demonic possession. And that gets made even more explicit as we move on in this text. But what is he doing? He is, they had to try to bind him because of his actions they had to try to put him in chains, but either through his, his own self, but probably more likely through this supernatural influence of demonic possession, he was able to break shackles and break chains. And what was he doing? Day and night, he was screaming and gashing himself with stones. We could paint a very visceral picture of this man and his plight, this man and the situation that he was in, living in the cemetery, completely cut up from harm he was doing to himself, probably because of influence from this demonic spirit or probably because he was trying to do anything he could to get some sort of relief from this oppression, screaming up on this mountaintop all the time. 
As we see in verse 9, we haven't gotten there yet, but he says, when he is asked his name by Jesus, he says that he is legion because we are many. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he says to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. Again, this is an area that was under significant uh, uh, influence by Rome after only about 75 years ago, Pompey coming through with his legions, this, these groups of 5,600 men, and occupying and, and uh, taking control of the area. And so is there a correlation? Maybe. But what this means is there's this a great amount. We don't know if it was 5,600 to the dot, like a Roman legion was, but there was a great number of demonic entities possessing this man. As we talked about with some of the, the, the previous uh, um, exorcism texts that we see in Mark, we don't have a full explanation of demons and how they work in the particular details. That's not something that Scripture goes into detail talking about. And I think, and this is my personal preference or my personal conviction, the reason why is because we've been given an inch when it comes to angels and demons in Scripture. And if you go to the very few Christian bookstores that still exist in the world, they've taken that inch and they have they've gone a mile with it. There are countless bookshelves talking about demons, talking about angels, talking about heaven talking about hell, talking about this world that is unseen, and doing so in a way that takes what Scripture says and goes way beyond it. So, as is the case with maybe the, the biography of some of the saints, or Mary, or, 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 or John the Baptist, or people like that, or say, as is the case with heaven and hell, we are only given what is necessary for us understanding the ministry of Christ and His expectations for how we ought to worship Him and live today. We know angels are ministering spirits for our good. We know that demons are evil entities that are for our harm. But as to the, some sort of hierarchy, as to how many demons can possess a man or how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, we don't have that kind of information. But what we do have clearly articulated in God's word, not just in Mark's gospel, but in other gospels, that this man was possessed by countless evil entities. Now, I do want to take a little bit of a side note to, to, to make a, a, a comment on this text, because contemporary uh, kind of use of this text is to say that this is a man, because he was different, was ostracized. That would be the, the application at a, kind of a progressive Christian perspective. This man was different. This man didn't act normal. He probably was, he was probably very gifted, and people didn't understand his giftedness, and so they persecuted him. As that sounds like nonsense, it's because it is nonsense. But I do think that, that it is important to see that there is not necessarily a commentary on how society works, but it's a commentary on compassion. Because this was a man that no one had compassion for, therefore their, their attempt at compassion looked like shackles and chains. And as we'll see in a minute, it is a person that Jesus had compassion for. So although this isn't a text necessarily articulating about the idea of ostracization or cultural divisions or things like that, it is a commentary on how Christ's compassion and how the ministry of Jesus breaks through the difficult boundaries that are set up because of the brokenness of humanity and the cultures that we create. Does, does that make sense? It, it, it's not, again, 
it's not a commentary on how some people are ostracized. It's a commentary about how Christ's ministry, and by extension, the ministry of his church, is to break through any and all boundaries that are set up by us because of our fallenness or by the culture because of its fallenness. So all that to say, we get to this man and we see this interaction with Jesus. Picking up again in verse 6, it says, And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he, talking about Jesus, had been saying to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. So we see a couple of other interesting things here. Everybody else in the face of this opposition tries to lock up this man, tries to keep this man at arm's length, tries to stay away. And even the language that Mark has used is to insinuate that this was a dangerous and frightening situation. But what does Jesus do? Jesus walks through, Jesus walks up to this man, and he doesn't back down, but this man, or the demons possessing this man, actually, as it says here in verse 6, bow down before him. This is the power of Christ. Jesus is opposed. He faces this, this opposition, but he doesn't falter. And I think that it is, it is not by coincidence, I think it is by purpose, that this narrative is right on the heels of the last narrative, and where Jesus was opposed by this great raging windstorm and simply stood up and with a word calmed it, the same thing happens in this situation. In fact, the language is remarkably similar, that Christ rebukes the sea and he rebukes these demons. And how does he do it? Something that goes back thousands of years. In fact, uh, we, we mentioned the Apostles' Creed and how it has certainly a very early origin. There's a, a, another work that I spent more time reading than I probably should have this week uh, regarding the perspectives on in the second and third century about demons and about exercising demons. And again, it comes up with this convoluted hierarchy of what, what they thought demons were and all of the steps that were necessary in exorcisms. And in fact, this is one of the things that people often fall down this rabbit hole in trying to figure out what should an exorcism look like? How many priests? How old should they be? How big of crosses? What material of the crosses? What kind of holy water? What kind of special words? And this is not something that is unique to Christianity. In fact, many other religions have these complicated processes by which they seek to ward off evil spirits. But does Jesus need that? It says that he says to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. This is Jesus' exorcism. This is the complicated process of the Son of God. He simply speaks a word. And just like with a word, he calms a storm. With a word, as we'll see, and the narrative's a bit out of order, he's able to cast this evil spirit these evil spirits, I should say, out of this man. It only takes a word. Now, I think it's worth pausing here for a moment. Jesus unburdens this man all on his own, simply. He doesn't ask this man to do anything. He doesn't come to this man and say, well, I know you're possessed by demons, but you're going to have to do these three simple steps you have to follow this outline. You're going to have to do these things to be saved. Christ, on his own, in his sovereign saving hand, comes to this man 
in his lowest state, probably one of the most wretched from external evidences that we have, wretched men in all of Scripture, simply walks up to him and saves him. We see that this salvation actually goes deeper than saving from evil spirits because of this man's testimony later. But if Christ can do that for this man, he can certainly do it for you and for me. He certainly can do it for anyone. This is the nature of the salvation that comes through Christ. It does not require a person to get to some savable point before Christ saves them. Christ's salvation is powerful. It is complete. It is thorough. And it is total. This is the nature of the work of Christ. It doesn't involve a convoluted, complicated system. It simply involves his gracious work. Because the truth is, this man is hopeless and we can see it. But every one of us before Christ was hopeless. We might not have been in tombs. We might not have been on our own. We might not have been breaking shackles and gashing ourselves with stones. But our enmity that existed between us and God was just as, if not more, gruesome, violent, and wretched. But it was by his grace. And this is the nature of the gospel, church. It's not by anything that we do. It is by grace, through faith. It is undeserved. It is while we were yet sinners. It is while we were enemies of God. It is while we had lying on our lips. This is when he came to us. So when we look at this man, we look at his plight, we look at his situation, we ought to think that's terrible, but it also ought to draw us back to that time, even if we can't remember it, but because of God's grace when we were saved at an early age. But it ought to draw us back to the, the, the truth of the reality of this world that before Christ, we were worse off than this man. A helpless and hopeless man encountered Jesus. We look at verse 10. And he was, began pleading with him earnestly not to send them. Excuse, uh, and he began, this is Legion talking, the demon, to Jesus. He began pleading with him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons pleaded with him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. So, we have a bunch of dead pigs. This is an interesting passage. If this is a passage that you say, oh, I totally get it. Well, that's really good. But this is a bizarre text. And let's talk about it. Because it almost seems like it takes a very left-hand turn. We have Christ ministering to these people, and now to this man, excuse me, and then... This demon, this, these, this, this legion of demons, makes a request to be sent into pigs. Jesus is having a conversation with a group of demons. What is happening? Well, first of all, we, we often think about the pigs. We'll get to the pigs. Don't worry. The pigs are Pigs matter. They're delicious and they matter. We're going to get to them. But sometimes we focus on the pigs so much that we kind of lose sight of the bigger picture of what's happening. The demons are the ones that are doing the damage to the pigs. Sometimes we say, why did Jesus do this to the pigs? The demons are the ones who did this to the pigs. We'll get to that in a moment. But look at what's happening. The demons are pleading for mercy. We saw that already in verse 7. In verse 7, there was the, the man 
But the demons crying out, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. And then again, they pleaded with him saying, send us into the swine. This is the influence, the impact that Christ has on these demons. They know exactly who he is. Again, they don't have the right posture, they don't have the right position, they don't have the right attitude, but they have the right knowledge and the awareness of who Jesus is. And so Jesus grants them their desire to leave this man and go into this this herd of swine. Now notice in verse 11 through 13, there's no comment from Mark in the text. There's no comment from Jesus about why into the pigs? Does Jesus not care about pigs? Does, does God not care about animals? That's, that's not what we see here. What we see is that the intention the entire time of these demons, as is the, the, the case for all demons, as the case for Satan, is to kill and destroy. This is the intention of the demonic realm. It's to kill and destroy. It's to kill and destroy spiritually, but it's also to kill and destroy what is physical, what is God's creation. Killing was the demon's intention all along. They were in the process, the slow, torturous process of killing this man who they had possessed. And so when given to this, when, when, when allowed to enter the swine, all they could do was fulfill their desire and have these swine plunge down this hillside. This is from early church father Jerome in writing about this passage. He says, It need not disturb anyone that by the Lord's command, 2,000 swine were slain by the agency of demons, since those who witnessed the miracle would not have believed that so great a multitude of demons had gone out of the man unless an equally vast number of swine had rushed to ruin, showing that it was a legion that impelled them. So this is just his opinion. But his opinion is, first and foremost, this was the agency of demons. This was not Jesus that killed the pigs. Secondly, and this is an interpretation that many have had in these last last 2,000 years, is that although it wasn't necessarily a one-to-one correlation, we had thousands of pigs killed by thousands of demons illustrating the great work that Jesus had done pulling these demons out of this man. But something else is happening here. The situation has changed, and it happened in a dramatic way. This man that was dramatically possessed is now no longer possessed. This great herd of swine was killed by these demons in a dramatic way. And what is people's response? We'll get to that in a minute. But we we often hear this, this sentiment uttered, either in conversation that you have with people that you know, that you read online or that you hear about, where they say, if I only saw this, then I would believe. If I only saw this happen, if if, if God would write in the sky, in clouds, I exist, then I would believe. Well, that's, to use a technical term, fooey. Because we see people interacting with Christ, seeing these amazing things happen, And the Gospel of John does a really good job with this, not to say that Mark doesn't, but talking about how people simply followed him because they wanted this food. They didn't care that it was being brought about by miraculous means. They just knew it was food. And here you have 
this man that no one could restrain, that no one could control, that no one wanted to be around. And you look at verse 15, jumping down, it says, and they, the herdsmen, came down to Jesus and observed the demon-possessed man sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. They saw something impossible happen, and their response wasn't, God be praised, who's this guy? Their response is fear. And we only have to go back to the last story to look at how this is how the disciples responded. And we only have to go back into our own hearts to understand sometimes this is how we respond. God, show me a sign. Something happens. No, I want a different sign. There's a, the, the silly anecdote that often gets told about the man who is, uh, the, the area is flooding, and so he goes up to his roof and the boat comes by and he's saying, no, I'm waiting for God to save me. And then a helicopter comes by and he's saying, no, I'm waiting for God to save me. And then he eventually is taken away by the storm. How does God choose to save us? He chooses to save us and chooses to reveal himself and chooses to show himself in ways that he wants to do it, not necessarily that we want to see it happen. And so these people some of them inevitably Jews, maybe who, had, who, were, who were herding swine for the, the occupying Romans, some of them Gentiles because it was a Gentile region, were now seeing something remarkable. But although they saw it with their eyes, they didn't believe because faith doesn't come by seeing. Faith comes from God's sovereign work in someone's life and through faith. Jesus says in John chapter 20, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. So we see going back one verse in verse 14, it says, And the herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the countryside. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus, as we just read, and observed the demon-possessed man sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it recounted to them how this had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. They get the full picture, and their response is fear. What they don't see is that Jesus, the very same Jesus who had brought peace to a raging storm on the sea, has now brought peace to a raging storm in this man. This is what Christ does. And these, these miracles are actually kind of microcosms of what Christ is doing in the world. He is in the business of restoring people, and he's also in the business of restoring all creation. Romans says that all creation groans as it waits for this to happen. And what we see here in these two stories, these two, two miraculous things of, an, of a storm that could not be calmed by human means and a man that could not be calmed by human means, Christ doing both of those things by a word, giving us a foretaste of what we can anticipate when he returns and all things are brought to order. Christ has that power. These are examples of it. And your hearts, if they've been saved by Christ, are examples of this also. There's a hopeless man and a changed situation. But then as we see, a mixed response. Look at these last four verses. And they, the herdsmen, the townspeople, began to plead with him to leave their region. 
And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was pleading with him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to preach in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was marveling. So we have a mixed response. Two very different reactions to this changed situation of this hopeless man. First, the crowds were afraid of Jesus. Just like the disciples. There was a fear level. The disciples were afraid of the storm. These men in this situation were afraid of this demon-possessed man. But once they realized the power wielded by the Son of God, the power wielded by Jesus, their fear became rightly directed but not rightly ordered. They were afraid of Jesus, but they did not fear Jesus. They were right to understand the severity of who he is and what he could do. But because of their hardness of heart, because of their blindness, whether it be because they they lost their livelihood in the pigs, whether it be because they're simply scared of things that are greater than them, they did not have that rightly ordered fear and that rightly ordered affection of the Son of God manifesting his sovereign power in front of them. The crowds were afraid of Jesus, more than the man, more than the demons. So that was their response. But then you see a very different response, and this is pretty inevitable. It makes a lot of sense. In verse 18, it says that the man who had been deemed possessed was pleading with him that he might accompany him. You see pleading happening a couple of times in this passage. This is a very visceral passage. It comes through pretty, pretty well in the English, but it's very, very strongly worded. The demons were pleading with Jesus to be merciful to them. The townspeople were pleading with Jesus to leave because they were afraid of him. And now this man who was one, who, who, who threw his vocal cords, but through the voice of these demons were ones pleading for him to get away from him, is now pleading for him to be able to come with him. What a transformation. Something that could only be wrought by the Son of God and by the power of his Spirit. But Jesus' plan, as it says in verse 19, was not for this man to follow him physically. He didn't let him. He didn't let him get in the boat. Jesus had a plan. Jesus was not, anybody and everybody come with me. I'm fine with 12 apostles. I'm fine with 45 apostles. I'm fine with... He had a plan. This man was not going to change that. Peter wasn't going to change that. Judas wasn't going to change that. Jesus had a plan. And Jesus said, no. I have who I want to have following me. I have a plan for you. He says this, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Jesus did not permit this man to follow him in, in, in a physical sense, but he commanded him to follow him in a discipleship sense. Notice that this man doesn't have a perfect Christology. He doesn't know the nature of Jesus. He doesn't understand the hypostatic union of him being truly God and truly man. He doesn't know about the cross. He doesn't know about the substitutionary atonement. He doesn't know these things. He just knows that Jesus does these great works. And Jesus says, that's enough. You're trained because you've been changed. And sometimes that is much more significant than a seminary-level education, a heart and a life that has been changed. And so he tells him to go. 
and what happens when he goes. And he went away and began to preach in Decapolis. Again, this is a Roman-occupied area, what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was marveling. Something we don't have in the text, but something that is inevitably true because God is a God who doesn't leave loose threads, is that inevitably in the ministry of the apostles, as they went out after Pentecost to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, some of these people who had gotten part of the story from this man who had been once gashing himself among the tombs, possessed by demons, shackled up by man, ostracized and cast out, were the very same people who came to faith in Christ. It's inevitable. It's too good not to be true. This is the kind of ministry that God allows us to be a part of, regardless of where we were, regardless of where we are, because he's only interested in taking us from that place to where we ought to be. And what do you see because of this happening? You see Jesus being proclaimed in a Gentile region. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, we're only in Mark chapter 5, but this early point in his ministry is making it clear that his ministry is directly to the Jews in and around Jerusalem. But because of this man, the agency of this transformed man, he is now, his word and his, his fame and his renown is being proclaimed elsewhere. Notice something else that's interesting that happens here. We always talk about how folks who are skeptical say, where does it say that Jesus is God in the Bible? It says it all over the place. Here's one of these things in verse 19. It says, Jesus says, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And then it says in verse 20, and he went away to preach in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. These parallel phrases underlining, outlining, giving a great emphasis in the fact that Christ is God, that Jesus is Lord. And this is happening being proclaimed in a Gentile region by a Gentile. But what we see here is everyone's life is topsy-turvy. There is significant change. This hopeless man's situation was changed, and it caused all sorts of havoc, good havoc for those that, that, that trusted in Christ, and, and, and certainly uh, those who lost 2,000 swine, those who were frightened, those who, who, who pleaded for Jesus to leave, their lives were changed also. This just reminds us that people's lives, when they have a confrontation with the gospel, are going to be upended. The kingdom economy is completely different than the economy of this world, and the two cannot coexist. And anytime someone comes, becomes confronted with, goes face-to-face with the gospel, with the power of Christ, what that inevitably leads to is to a great shaking, a shaking of those things that cannot last to be destined to piles of rubble and to leave that which is lasting, that has eternal value. This is even true for us. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. What the Apostle Paul writes there in Romans chapter 6 has become just so normal to us, I think, so routine, so regular, so, so recited by our children in their memory verse programs, so understood by us that we lose sight of the fact that our old man was crucified. This is the amount of change. This is the amount of upheaval and shaking that our lives go through. 
Again, for many of us, it happened at a young age by God's grace. For for some, some of us, our lives might parallel this man a little bit more. It might not have been physical tombs. It might not be physical gashing. It might not be physical chains, but it might have been situations and circumstances that necessitated an understanding of a crucifixion of that old thing that is now gone. But we'll also see this as we bring the gospel of the kingdom into our community, to our neighbors, to our watching world. There is going, there's not a nice, smooth dovetail. Things don't join together perfectly. Things are going to butt up against and rub raw and fray because the economy of the kingdom is a different economy of the world. It messes up livelihoods. It messes up the status quo. But what we are laying down and what we are building and what we are trumpeting, church, is what is eternal and what is coming. So we have this message for the hopeless. We have this message for the fact that Jesus can change hopeless lives. Because without Christ, there is no hope. Without Christ, we're simply chemicals. We're simply the same sort of matter that you see in the bird flying overhead or in the tree growing in the, in the ground. But there is hope with Christ, and Jesus comes to the hopeless. Jesus changes that situation. And we have to understand that the world's response will be mixed. We have to understand that there is not going to be great joy for those who receive the gospel and its judgment. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to all us being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Church, our task is to bring God's good news the good gospel, to a world that is in the tombs, that is gashing itself, that is screaming out for answers. And we can do that because of Christ's spirit in us and what he has enabled us, empowered us, and commanded us to do. Something that the world thinks is foolish is having a meal that consists of a small sip and a small cracker. It seems foolish because This cannot nourish your stomach. Unless you are completely famished, this will do nothing for you. If anything, in our culture, in our life, in our state of blessedness, this will only whet the appetite, hoping that the cookies and the brownies and the things are still downstairs by the time the children are through with them. It is foolishness from the world's standards. But by God's standards, the economy of the kingdom understands that this small cup of wine that this small bit of bread nourishes us at a level that is much deeper. It nourishes us because it reminds us of our hopelessness and how we are changed. And our response is to receive these elements in faith, and in doing so, we understand that Christ is present with us. Present as we receive this, and then present with us as individuals, as families, as a church, as we go from this place, looking to do what we talked about this morning, bringing his good gospel of hope to a hopeless world, looking to change it, knowing that he is in the business as Lord of changing it and bringing things to order. So I'll pray. John and the musicians will come up and lead us in a song. You can come up and receive the elements, take them back to their chair, and then Joe will lead us in the Lord's Supper. You'll pray with me. Lord, we thank you again for an opportunity to come 
before you. Lord, we ought to, in you, think of ourselves as better than we often do because we are redeemed by the blood of your Son. But at the same time, we ought to, in the other hand, hold tight to the fact of who we were, of how we were no better off than this man, far from you, far from others, requiring intervention that only comes through your Son and his Spirit. So Lord, we pray that we will live out the hope that was given to us because of this great transformation, that we will shout it from the rooftops, that we will whisper it to our children, and that everyone who hears it, that we understand that there will be a response, that there is a dividing line, that the gospel is wisdom to those who you give wisdom, but it is foolishness to those who are perishing. We pray that we can be worthy vessels to bring this good news this great joy to our community and to our world. And so be with us as we, with hearts that are contemplative and minds that are focused on what you have given us, receive this supper. May you be glorified in it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.